end of the year is a really good time to look back on the news and take stock. When I look back at 2018, there are a lot of foreign policy stories, and big ones, stories involving President Trump in particular, that caused people to freak out or make bold predictions about the future. And look, some of that time, that freakout was clearly justified. Trump's climate change policies could lead to a catastrophe, and his approach to Saudi Arabia has been dubious, to put it mildly. But there are some Trump policy initiatives that, looking back, may not have justified all the attention they got. So that's the question that we're going to be debating on this week's Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. The question is which of this year's big headline foreign policy stories were overhyped? I'm Zach Beecham, here with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hi. What's up? We're going to get a little bit more more punchy this episode. We have some some real disagreements this time around. Boy, do we. Uh, just so everyone's aware, Zach has uh, a few concerns about uh, the frame of the entire episode, which is awesome because we're going to get into that for elsewhere. We're going to... Debate the debate. So stay tuned. So meta. The first of these potentially overhyped policy issues that we're going to talk about was Trump's decision to move the U.S. embassy to Israel from Tel Aviv, where it had been under previous presidents, to Jerusalem, which Israel claims is its capital. So this was a big deal because, well, everyone said it was a big deal. And it seems so at the time, right? I mean, this was a massive foreign policy decision. And look, it had kind of been American law. So Congress passed a law saying that the American embassy should be in Jerusalem. Previous presidents had pushed it off for national security reasons, right? One of the big worries was if this embassy moves, there's going to be a massive protest. It could lead to even greater unrest in the Middle East. And so basically every president was just kind of like, let's just keep holding this. Let's just wait. Trump, however, did not do that. Right. And so, like, at the time, there were, you know, headlines. We try to be really careful on our side to talk about, like, what the actual, you know, ramifications could be and, you know, what we may or may not see. But, like, there were headlines and, and experts saying, like, this is going to cause the Middle East to just catch on fire, right? Like, there are going to be protests in the streets of Arab capitals. We're going to see huge rallies, people denouncing this. This could cause violence, even, like, terror attacks. Like, this is a huge thing. And it's going to be this, like, huge rupture in, you know, the U.S. ability to kind of act as, like, a, a broker in the Israeli-Palestinian peace negotiations. Like, it was this huge thing, which, as Alex said, was why previous presidents had used this national security waiver and said, no, like, I get that Congress said we should do this, and, like, officially U.S. law is that the embassy should be located in Jerusalem. But for national security reasons, like, this is dangerous and could be a problem, so I'm not going to do that. And so that was, like, the big warning when this story happened. But does anyone remember there being big, massive terrorist attacks after the embassy was moved? Yeah, not really. No. It's no. because uh, it didn't happen. Well, exactly. I mean, there were some protests, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't as horrible as it had been predicted, right? We were kind of expecting the sky to fall. I mean, look, one consequence is that U.S.-Palestinian relations, or what little there was, are effectively ended. I mean, it went from like 2%, so to speak, to zero. Okay, hold on. You're making both sides of the argument, right? Because that's the argument that I made when we were talking about this episode in saying why it's actually important. Every Palestinian still thinks that this is a huge deal, really torpedoing the U.S.'s ability to serve as a neutral broker in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And it shouldn't be downplayed as, like, this doesn't matter at all. But I think, you know, the point that we didn't see this, like, massive uprising over it. I mean, you know, people were predicting things like, you know, level of Arab Spring, right? Like, people in the streets across every Arab capital. And we didn't see that. Um, and I think there are a lot of reasons for that. And one just happens to be the fact that the Israeli-Palestinian issue isn't nearly as central 
to like Middle Eastern politics in various individual Middle Eastern countries in the way that it used to be, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, there are other kind of internal issues, like you have the Syrian civil war, right? Like you have all these kind of other issues that have become much more salient, and it's not as much of this big identity issue that it used to be. And to respond to you, Zach, I mean, yes, if you can see the torpedoing of U.S.-Palestinian relations as a, as a bad thing, and, and, and in a sense it is, but, like, it sucked already, and it just sucks more now. And if the big sort of upshot of this as well, it's going to basically make the chance of uh, an Israel-Palestine deal even less likely. Well, it wasn't likely to begin with anyway, but an upshot of this is U.S.-Israel relations got a lot better. So, you know, it, it's kind of a give or take. Not that. sure if that's an upshot, yeah, but, but I take yeah. your point. <laughs> no, I mean, to, to what end, right? Even if there's a limited chance of an Israeli-Palestinian peace deal, right, just, just a small one, that's still better than virtually none, which is where we're at right now. And the window for the two-state solution is getting narrower and narrower as settlements expand and Israeli politics go right. And the idea of a one-state solution gets more popular among Palestinians. We're getting close to a use-it-or-lose-it moment for U.S. credibility. And it seems to me that Trump might have said lose it. So I will say that <laughs> just arguing against the point that I just made— when you say, like, to what end, it isn't good that the U.S. and Israel have a closer relationship now than arguably ever before, and I would argue that. The idea that the U.S. was always meant to be the one that is supposed to bring Israel to the table, right? Like, the U.S. has never actually been an equal broker in this with no stake in the game, right? Like, it's always been the U.S. relationship has always been closer with Israel. But you could make the argument that because the U.S. gave this kind of gift to Israel and to Benjamin Netanyahu's government in Israel, that we could then now say, okay, well, we gave you this thing that you've been asking for for a long time. Now you've got to do something for us, which is to do X, Y, and Z toward the Palestinians. So there is a chance that we could use this as leverage as saying, look, you've wanted this forever. Now you've got to do something for us. And we could use that to push the peace deal forward. Now— if they're smart about it, they could potentially do that. I'm not saying that they are going to or that they are smart. That logic has been used before uh, to placate Israel. But speaking of negotiations, I want to move on to our second topic, which is Trump's big quote-unquote deal, which is the summit with Kim Jong-un, which happened back in June. So there's no doubt that the summit was historic. No sitting U.S. president had sat down with his North Korean equivalent before. But something can be historic and also in, not that important in policy or substantive terms for real people. Right. So, like, this was a huge deal in terms of, like, a historical moment. There's no doubt having these two world leaders meet after they had been, like, threatening fire and fury and threatening to, like, wipe each other out, coming together to meet. The whole fucking world was watching this. I know we were glued to our TVs. I stayed up all night that night, like, writing about it. It was a big moment culturally, politically. I think that's a different question than like whether it actually produced something that warrants like the kind of attention that it got. Is there tangible results to show for like all the hype that it got? I think that's the question that we really want to tackle. Well, yeah, you're right. It was definitely more of a show than substance. I mean, what they effectively agreed to was let's try to minimize tensions and then maybe we'll come up with a deal on denuclearization. Right, like they came out of this meeting and it's this big spectacle and they have this press conference. They sign this like dramatic document, like this declaration that basically said like, oh, we're going to agree to keep talking and like to to do some some stuff to make things uh, better. But in that the was meantime, about in the meantime, as specific as it got. In the meantime, uh, Kim Jong-un has basically 
become the like, yeah, sure, Jan gif and continues to expand his nuclear capabilities, not necessarily the nuclear bomb per se, but satellite photos show the missile program expanding. It, it really doesn't seem like Trump accomplished a whole lot with this apparently historic declaration that came out of it. Yeah, what what gif are you talking about? Oh, the Brady Bunch gif of, yeah, sure, Jan. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. Sure, Jan. Yeah, we all believe you. Sure, Jan. You <laughs> sure, sure you have a boyfriend. Uh-huh. So what Trump tweets after this is, the threat from North Korea is over. That's obviously not true, as Zach said. Still building nuclear weapons. Um, still evading U.S. sanctions. Oddly, though, Trump is fine with this. Like, his big issue is that as long as they are not testing missiles like they were all through 2017, which kept me up at night, they're kind of chilling and still improving their program quietly. So the spectacle that was supposed to lead to this peace deal did not lead to a peace deal. It led to a, I guess, ceasefire, which, look, you can see that as kind of a good thing for now. Right, like, it's demonstrably a fact that tensions are less on the Korean Peninsula and between the U.S. and North Korea than they were before this happened, several months before this happened, right? Like, we went from literally, like, I will wipe you out, we will rain down fire and fury like the world has never seen, and, like, North Korea threatening to bomb Guam. Like, this is this is not okay, right? It was really scary at the time. If everyone remembers, like, we did several episodes, like, are we— gonna go to war with North Korea. And we're not at that point now. And so, Alex, I think your point that, like, yeah, maybe there isn't substantive difference, but just the fact that Trump in his head thinks that, like, the problem has been, like, largely solved for now, like, that is still a net positive does in Trump, a lot of ways. Does, should Trump get credit and, and this list of some kind of accomplishment for solving a crisis that he created? And I don't I mean— I don't think— I don't mean, like, the North Korea situation in general or the nuclear program. Obviously, it would be silly to say that Trump created that. But the recent spate of tensions, like, that was in significant part because the president decided to go around using the really aggressive language to talk about North Korea, right? So he brought us to the point of nearly getting into a war with North Korea. Yeah, this is I don't know. This is like a like a toddler intentionally knocking over a toy box and then giving them credit for putting some of the toys back in the box at the end. Like, they still knocked over the toy box, but North Korea also upped their missile testing like over and over and over. They had tested a ton in a row and then Trump started getting really feisty, right? So I'm not going to put this all on Trump. Yeah, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, I, you do, I think, give Trump a bit credit from, even though, agree, he opened the pathways to war, he still closed some of them, it seemed. Uh, he still had to agree to Kim Jong-un's invitation right. to meet, right? Previous presidents wouldn't have done that. And so, in a way, Trump's desire for the spectacle, for the dramatic de-escalate, and I can't imagine another president accepting Kim Jong-un's offer to do so. Right, or, you know, coming out and saying that they fell in love, which is what right. he since said, that we fell in love at that summit, yeah, which, like, can you imagine literally any other U.S. president being like, I'm in love with the North Korean dictator? Okay, so there's a pretty good case that the North Korea summit was important, if not for the reasons that some people might have suggested at the time. But now I want to move to a different summit, the one that Trump held with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Now, this, In Helsinki, right? That yeah, one? Yeah, that one. Right? This was super dramatic at the time. Does everyone remember the, the like, sheer insanity that oh, surrounded yeah. this meeting? Oh, it was crazy. It was— Right. Yeah, so, it was so nuts. Trump and Putin have this kind of closed-door meeting one-on-one -on -one for a long time. They talk about God knows what. We still actually don't really know to this day what they talked about substantively in that meeting— but then Trump and Putin come out, and they're standing there, and they proceed to give this press conference in which Trump basically just freewheels it for like an hour and a half, just 
going off on tangents, answering all sorts of questions. He was like, who's got a question? It was this like long kind of far-reaching press conference in which he basically sided with President Putin uh, against his own intelligence community about whether or not Russia interfered in the U.S. election and a whole bunch of other stuff that a lot of people were really shocked that like the U.S. president was standing up next to the Russian president saying these sorts of things, which brings us to a point that Alex made at the time and would like to make again, which is... What did you expect to happen? Right. Like, you were shocked at the time. You are like, guys, why is everyone freaking out that Trump is doing this? It's Trump. Of course he's going to do this. Trump acted like Trump at a press conference. My God, what an insane thing. Okay, I don't I don't understand this line of reasoning, right? Like, yes, sure, it's what you would expect. But once again, we're back to this issue of like toddler-like expectations, right? You don't set the bar low for the president because you think he's going to behave badly. That just excuses further bad behavior. And in this case, right, this really was bad behavior, going up and defending Russia meddling in the 2016 U.S. election, interference with, like, the inner workings of American democracy. Like, he was providing propaganda cover for a strategic enemy. That's not acceptable behavior. And yeah. you also have to remember that this press conference didn't happen in, like, a vacuum, right? This meeting between Trump and Putin and the press conference after came right after Trump had gone to meet with a bunch of NATO allies, right? And it hadn't gone super well. Uh, he was, like, really kind of aggressive towards, you know, U.S.'s European allies and, like, pushing them really hard on, like, you've got to spend more on, on your militaries for NATO and blah, blah, blah. So the juxtaposition of that, of Trump being aggressive and, you know, belligerent at times even towards our European allies and then immediately going to Helsinki and standing next to the Russian president and being like, I don't know, he says he didn't do anything, so eh, was really shocking at the time. That's that's part of this. Yeah, but what I hated was the narrative of like, oh, my stars, how could Trump possibly do this on the world stage? Is that your Southern Belle accent? Yeah, because, it's not dear great. God. Was it's not anyone, great, but Was you anyone it. actually on a fainting couch? Like, oh, uh, there uh, were some people that were like, <laughs> I cannot believe the American I do president. declare. Yeah, but like, that's way better. I but, know. <laughs> well, she's actually Southern. No, right, I get it. But look, I mean, to, for people to say, like, I can't believe he sided with Putin's denials that they interfered in the election. He had done that before. <laughs> Which he's done literally he's done, he's done every before. time we've asked him about this. I can't believe he disparaged the intelligence community. He had called them Nazis. I cannot believe— Well, be he said they were kind of like the Gestapo. <laughs> okay, so, but like, I Nazis. Can't, I can't believe that he would go after Mueller. He has done that multiple times. This is not excusing his behavior. Of course he shouldn't have done that. But it is saying that you're surprised this is who Trump is on the world stage and that he did what he did. That was crazy to me. We should have expected that. The surprise would have been had he not done that. Okay, but <laughs> perceptions and context matter in international relations, right? The president doing that on his own time is one thing. And it's bad. It's not. I'm not going to say that's good. But that only makes the point stronger than when he goes into a situation where allies and other countries, these NATO people that Jen is talking about, would expect him to act— presidentially, to act like somebody they can trust and count on, he acted in the most extreme Trump fashion possible. He's delivered sober policy speeches before. He's behaved himself in public appearances. Not all of them are that terrible. Doing it in that context, in that super public, high-profile meeting with Putin, really illustrates just how unreliable the U.S. is as a partner under Trump. But to the main point, did that speech matter? Did that press conference matter? Right. It, like, it, did it, it deserve all the hype of, Oh my stars, look what he did. That's the the point here. Right. And also, 
Trump's policy towards Russia, with him or without him, has been quite tough. We've expelled intelligence officials. We've put sanctions on it. Uh, we've seen NATO defense spending go up based on on U.S. programs. Like, we've given, like, we've approved more defensive weapons to Ukraine exactly. to fight back against Russia. Absolutely. So, like, we called out Russia. You talk about kicking out those spies. That was over the the poisoning, the assassination attempt against Sergei Skripal and his daughter uh, in Britain, right? And so, you know, the U.K. was like, "Hey, U.S., are you going to like join us in condemning Putin and Russia for doing this?" And we did, and we kicked out a bunch of Russian intelligence officers. And we pulled out of a nuclear deal with Russia because it had been cheating on it. And while you may agree or disagree with that move, he at least got, or at least the U.S. got, European allies to push against Russia in sort of a joint statement. So, like, look, I get that Trump looks super weak next to Putin in Helsinki. The Trump administration has looked super strong, and so I think the sort of the the, the kvetching over that one instance seems to me overwrought. But look, um, if you segment things out like that, you can make a case that things are actually fine and nothing mattered that much. But this is what I have a problem with in this conversation. And after the break, I want to talk about what it means for a superpower to die by a thousand paper cuts. Real estate investing is known for a lot of things, mainly making a select group of people a lot of money. Being an online, cutting-edge experience usually isn't one of the hallmarks. Well, that's no longer the case, though. Fundrise is the future of real estate investing. The revolutionary model is actually transforming the industry thanks to software that cuts out costly middlemen and old market inefficiencies. Fundrise delivers the kind of unique investing power you usually only see at giant institutions, bringing real estate's unique potential for long-term growth and cash flow to individual investors. Getting started is simple, and it usually takes less than five minutes. When you invest, you'll be instantly diversified across dozens of real estate projects, each one carefully vetted and actively managed by Fundrise's team of real estate pros. Well, then you can use their intuitive investor dashboard and real-time reporting system to monitor the progress of each property within your portfolio. That's the future of real estate investing. So, ready to get started? Visit fundrise.com slash worldly. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash worldly to have your first three months of fees waived. Again, one more time, that's fundrise.com slash worldly. Welcome back. So we just had this big discussion about whether or not individual Trump foreign policy news stories may have been overblown in the coverage at the time. And, you know, Jen suggested at the beginning that I had some problems with the framing, with the concept behind this conversation. And she's right, right? The reason, put simply, is that it doesn't make sense to consider individual Trump decisions on their own at a certain level. What Trump is doing is a more fundamental destabilizing of the way the United States is seen by other countries around the world. It's this thing that was supposed to be the linchpin of the global order, the most powerful country, its diplomatic, economic, and military leader, and was supposed to be upholding the pillars of global stability, international institutions, alliances, and so on. But Trump, in his various different wrecking ball ways, is going about dismantling trust in the oh United God, States. Oh, God, I just pictured him on a wrecking ball like Miley Cyrus. I came oh, in like a wrecking ball. Oh <laughs> yeah, Thank okay. you, Jen, for that horrific image. Cool. And Anytime. And... Look, it, when trust in the U.S. declines as, you know, the global leader, then the ability for other countries to know how to respond to American actions so that they can count on American promises decreases. And that makes the risk of a huge catastrophe, something like a war between NATO and Russia, 
significantly more likely, and I think we're undercounting that by not looking at the global destabilizing effect that Trump's antics have, even if they don't have the policy consequences in the short term that they were promised. So to boil that down, where it seems like where Zach does not want to hand it to Trump, or like you should not necessarily hand it to him, I think it's worth handing it to his administration at least. I mean, despite Trump, some good things have happened, you could argue. I mean, the tougher policy towards Russia, uh, a pushback on China. We can talk about the trade war, but still, a pushback on China, uh, basically taking territory away from ISIS, a stronger economy. I mean, it, he can do all these thousand cuts, I agree, but the body is still intact. And in fact, you can make the case that it's stronger. What I, but to Alex's your, last name, little known fact, is MAGA. Uh, <laughs> but, where I, but where I think I can meet you halfway is I've talked to you know officials in Europe and in Asia and it seems like they're just kind of all waiting, hedging their bets, knowing that it's unstable, knowing that it's odd, and waiting for 2020. Should he win in 2020? Well, then it becomes a bigger conversation of, well, maybe this is America now. Maybe right. Eight years is a long time in U.S. foreign policy, right? Exactly. But if he loses in 2020, well, then maybe they go, that was a blip. It sucked. We hated it, uh, even though there were some good things, but— Maybe now we're going back into the the old ways. Right. And there is also the case to be made, and I'm going to make that case. And yes, this is probably going to come across as like a pro-Trump argument. So everyone hold on to your pants. Here we go. So I do think that a positive thing to come out of Trump's approach to foreign policy and to policy making in general is his willingness to kind of go against the status quo, to question, you know, long-held fundamental cornerstones of U.S. foreign policy, right? We always support NATO. NATO is super important because it is, right? He comes in, you know, even when he's running, he says, well, what the hell's the point of NATO? After the Cold War, Cold War is over. Why do we need it? Well, th that's a valid question to ask. And we weren't really asking that at a public level, right? You might read like a white paper from a think tank, but probably not because everyone's like, well, duh, everybody knows. Well, everybody doesn't know why NATO matters. And explaining that one to the American people in a way that makes sense, like, okay, what is the point of this? Um, other things, like Alex, you mentioned earlier, just the fact that Trump was willing to go sit down with Kim Jong-un, whereas other presidents weren't. That alone is positive in the sense that, like, I think at a broader level, he has shown that, like, look, you can question long-held policy beliefs. You can do things differently. You don't you know, have to be stuck in this foreign policy prison. There's a long kind of standing argument that people would make about how Republican and Democrat, left, right, doesn't matter who you are. When you get into office, you're constrained by the geopolitical realities, right? There's only so much you can do, you know, like launch a war in Iraq. Like there are some things you can do, but like, little you know, things. but in terms of like how you deal with China, how you deal with North Korea, like you still face the same fundamental issues. And I think, yes, doing it in a super erratic, irresponsible way is probably not the best way to do it. But if his legacy is, look, sometimes you can come in and just go, yeah, fuck you. I'm not going to do the thing that you said I have to do. I'm going to make my own decision because I think it's the right thing to do. If you have someone who actually has smart policy instincts and does that, I think that's a positive. See, I think that's bad, right? Great. I think that opening up that door is bad. The architecture of global stability depends on predictability on the United States. It depends on 
U.S. participation in NATO not being a subject for public debate. It depends on the global trade regime remaining open and the U.S. remaining committed to keeping the global trade regime open. It depends on the U.S. being a reliable partner for Japan and South Korea, right? All of these things can't be questioned because once the—and I mean this in, in the most literal sense—because once major political leaders call them into question, then their foreign counterparts start to wonder, even if Trump loses, as Alex is suggesting may very well happen, well, what if a future American president comes in and wins on the same platform? If this isn't America forever, it could be the Republican Party. And they have to start hedging their bets. Right. And that, when people start hedging and moving outside of the systemic constraints and guarantees, that's the kind of thing that produces instability. And by instability, I mean war. But, okay, I take your point, and I think that's a valid point. But that also assumes that global stability is great for everyone and that it should remain that way, right? So, like, the institution of slavery, for example, was pretty fucking stable, right, for the U.S. economy for a long fucking time. Does that mean that we shouldn't have, like, fought to overturn that status quo because it created a war? I would say that we definitely should have fought that war. That's just not to say that, like, we should have, like, a global civil war, right? That makes no sense. But— just the willingness to come in and go, well, fucking prove to me why NATO matters. Prove to me, explain to me why any of this stability matters. And is there a better way to do that? I think that is a really important thing to be able to do in office. Yeah, Jen, I agree that stability is bad when the status quo is bad, but the status quo now is not, in fact, bad. We have some of the highest life expectancies in human history, lowest extreme poverty rates, lowest rates of battle deaths. Like, this is a really good time to be alive. Disrupting that would be dangerous. Uh, depending where you are. But anyway. I'm Okay. Just one quick step back here. Fighting a civil war to stop slavery is one thing. Fine, but making it more likely that there's a nuclear war is another. Yeah, fair. And questioning norms and pushing back against the status quo and asking questions, if done in a measured, careful way, trying to find a better way to do things that helps more people— is a very different thing than what Trump is doing. I get that, right? Like, we don't have that politician in the office right now. We have Donald Trump. So I think the value, at least, of having this discussion at this point in the year was, look, we should sometimes freak out at moments of Trump's foreign policy, right? Listeners of this show know that sometimes we do, but it's also worth keeping an eye on them, being level-headed at all times, because then we can sort of look back and assess, and we can realize that it's not as bad at all moments, Sometimes they kind of work out okay, and that Trump is not all bad at all times. Absolutely. Listeners, we'd really love to hear what you think about this conversation, your views on Trump's year in review in terms of foreign policy and what we got right and what we got wrong here. So email us at worldly at vox.com or tweet at us. And on that note, we're going to close. I would like to thank, as always, our fantastic producer, Bird Pinkerton, and my co-hosts, Alex and Jen. And I want all of you listeners, show creators alike, to have a lovely, lovely holiday season.